0: Blog Talk Radio How would you like to get the inside scoop on the secret sauce of show business? Imagine being ahead of the pack when it comes to knowing how to land that part you crave in that film, play, or TV program. Listen to the Inside Acting Radio Show hosted by William Powell, the king of DC media, at blogtalkradio.com.
1: Search Inside Acting. Good evening, dear listeners. Tonight, I welcome Mark Lapidula. He is a senior lecturer in the film studies program at Yale University, and he is also a playwright, screenwriter, and an award-winning film producer. In addition to Yale, Mark has taught at Columbia University's graduate film school and created screenwriting programs at the University of Pennsylvania and John Hopkins, where he actually won an Outstanding Teaching Award. Now, Mark has also uh, been teaching seminars on screenwriting since 1992. His stage plays include Strip Her, Not By Name, Two Shakes, Men Like Us, The Rain's Chains, Serial Killer, and In Uniform Thanksgiving. And they have been produced in New York, on Off-Broadway, England, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. Mark has also uh, had several original screenplays commissioned or optioned, including Distant Influence, Night Bloom, and At Risk. Now, you can find out more about Mark. He's a very busy man. In fact, he's in uh, D.C. this uh, weekend. He's going to be doing some lectures is uh, going to be a featured speaker at uh, one day university. And that'll be uh, this Sunday, March 8th. But you can find out more about Mark. If you go to filmstudies.yale.edu, forward slash people, forward Mark hyphen Lapidula. That's L-A-P-A-D-U-L-A. So I see that Mark has been patiently waiting on the board. I'm going to go ahead and bring in Mark and let's see if we can get him on the air. And I see that he's live and on the air. Good evening, Mark. How are you, sir?
2: Hey, William, how are you? Thank you for that kind introduction.
1: (laughs) My pleasure, my pleasure. So I know this weekend you're going to be uh, lecturing, and uh, three of the films you're going to be talking about uh, are The Jazz Singer, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and uh, The Graduate. So talk a little bit about why you chose those three films.
2: Okay, well, these are under, yeah, the title of films that have changed America. And this is a a lecture that's going to be one of three lectures. Uh, Mine's third in the lineup. The first one is going to be uh, four musical masterpieces that changed America. That's Anna Chalenza from Georgetown, a professor there will be speaking. And then Jessica Payne from Notre Dame will be talking about what we know about the brain and what we don't. Uh, Both are amazing um, speakers. I go third. I'm going to be talking about these films, and we each speak for about an hour and five minutes. This is at the Lisner Auditorium on Sunday. And uh, the three films we talking about, um, since I only have an hour and five minutes, uh, sometimes there are different formats. With mm-hmm. Monday, U, it can be an hour and a half. It can be two hours, two and a half hours. This three films that changed America can be, can be four films. It can be five films. It can be six films, eight films, ten films, depending on how much time I have. But so what we're doing is we're starting at the beginning of the lineup uh, with the Jazz Singer and then Fugitive from Chain Gang and The Graduate. And these are all films that in some way or shape or form, they altered, well, human behavior. I mean, the people that watch these movies en masse sort of changed the way they actually thought about the world. And they actually went out and responded to the film that inspired them to maybe – make these dramatic changes in their lives. Uh, sometimes movies like Chain Gang, uh, they actually inspire, uh, you know, lawmakers to actually get in gear and actually pass legislation, put, put laws on the books that hope to make the lives of, you know, Americans in this case, you know, better. So uh, how often do you hear of a film that has that kind of impact or that kind of power? Well, once upon a time there were these films, I'm not sure there are that many today that are being made that we could actually quickly put into such a category because film has been so diluted. It's been so, um, well, I mean, it's been you know, under siege from so many other areas, from social media to you know just other places that sort of captivate people's attention that uh, film has lost a lot of its edge. But the best films still move us. They still make us think you know, ponder some of the deeper uh, subjects and uh, make us want to wrestle with some of the, you know, questions that have always plagued us as as human beings. And when we do come out of a movie like that, we definitely are inspired sometimes to to really act. And, I mean, this is the kind of film that, you know, we'll be talking about. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So that kind of segues into my next question about – now, I know in the past you've, you've you, you, I know you like the movie Chinatown and Easy Rider and these kind of films. What are some films today that rival those kind of films?
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's a matter of opinion. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not probably one that would be the best person to ask about, you know, current cinema as far as rivaling some of the greatest cinema of the past. I don't really, I'm not really sort of on board with that. I think there are films, you know, here and there that are, are, are truly great, but Chinatown probably is one of the greatest screenplays ever written. Godfather 1 and 2, Psycho by Hitchcock, uh, that that is also one of my favorite scripts. I mean, these films changed the way movies would be made. They actually set a standard that other films tried to, tried to emulate, tried to follow. Most films, of course, came up way short, but they might have not been as good as they were, If it weren't for a film like Chinatown, a movie uh, like um, L.A. Confidential probably wouldn't have been as good as it was because it made L.A. Confidential try to aspire to the level of Chinatown. It it certainly falls short of Chinatown, way short of Chinatown, but that still enables it to be a really good movie, if you understand, right? So these films inspire us to aim really high. And uh, when we come up short, Uh, we we still surprise ourselves. So yes, I mean, I saw Parasite. I thought Parasite was one of the most interesting movies that I saw in 2019. I think it certainly deserved uh, the recognition it it received. But um, at the same time, it's a movie that does have some serious issues. And that's it. Um, It's hard to make a perfect film. Chinatown, for the most part, is a perfect film. Uh, Godfather 1 and 2 really don't have flaws. I mean, we can quibble about little things, but um, the big, you know, uh, sort of picture of those movies—they really got every every piece in place and uh, did a, you know, an outstanding job. And whether this is slightly by accident or that it was fully coordinated and you know planned and executed, you know, we'll never fully know. But the result is what it is, and Chinatown and movies like Godfather 1 and 2 or a film like Psycho or a screenplay like Blade Runner, Usual Suspects, The Usual Suspects. These are films that other films will always be measured against. And, uh, you know, whether or not they're great, they will have to try to achieve a level of equality amongst this company. And, uh, you know, it's hard to do. That's really hard to do. I mean, 1917 was beautifully shot. That's an example of a film that was beautifully shot. But again, it has like some serious logic flaws and um some moments that really sort of distract you out of you know and take you out of the narrative um that i just thought were unfortunate but again a lot of it this is taste or lack of taste right it's your a person's opinion we all go to the movies and they mean to us what we kind of allow them to mean to us or what we want them or make them mean to us and uh yeah, I have no problem with that. I think it's great that there's disagreement over whether a film is good or very good or great or terrible or lousy. Uh, we, we can be polarized. I mean, there are people that will hate a movie that other people will absolutely adore. Um, in this day and age, we seem to have that kind of polarized reaction to a lot of the art that's out there. I really don't think that, you know, Godfather had a lot of people that just absolutely detested it when it came out. I'm sure it had, it's, you know, it's some critics. I mean, if let's say you were an Italian American and you saw this portrayal of, um, you know, Italian Americans as mobsters, I'm sure that was not something that you enjoyed necessarily uh, watching because you thought it, it might be, you know, continuing a stereotype that you just wanted to get away from. But the Godfather is much more than a film about the mafia. It's much more than a film about just gangsters. It's a film about how America does business. And so he's using the mafia as just a, you know, a symptom of a far greater disease that is something that you know, plagues American business and how business operates. When Michael Corleone is at the table with all the, the people from around the world that are like world you know, titans of industry, you think, oh, my gosh, look, he's really made it. He's now a legitimate businessman. But really what Coppola is saying is, no, he's not. In fact, he's now sitting at a table with far greater gangsters than his father ever dreamed of, you know, entertaining. And so that scene in Godfather 1 when Vito is at the table with all the heads of the five families eerily mirrors the same scene. It's the same camera angles. It's the same, you know, camera that goes down the rows of the people seated at the conference table. Uh, they, They definitely mirror each other when Michael Corleone is in Cuba you know, with Hyman Roth and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, these are very clever filmmakers, uh, you know, we'll sort of see, I mean, we have to, we have to let this century get a little older before we sort of are able to really assess what the 21st century, the contributions that it's really made to the medium. But, uh, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's always in a state of flux.
1: Amazing. You know, uh, there's so many ways to look at a piece of art. I mean, I see Godfather as Corleone is uh, Michael, the main character. You could kind of look at it from a characterization standpoint. it like one man, you know, fall into evil. But when you say perfect, yeah. there's, so, there's so many different ways. I mean, there's theme, character structure, the impact it had on the audience. I mean, what am I missing? What are some other things you look for in a perfect film?
2: Well, I mean, what you're looking for in a in a great film is that the the film itself, I mean, obviously is beautifully shot. You want it to have a great musical score. You want the acting to be first rate. You want all the set design elements to be consistent with the era that's being depicted. You know, the acting styles, you know, have to really come together, it has to be chemistry between the actors, the characters within within the storyline. But you want a rich subtext. You want something that there's a lot beneath the surface that is not easily recognizable. You want to have a film that is challenging to a viewer. You want to create a movie, ideally, that is uh, forcing those who participate as audience members to be creative viewers. So they're actually working hard simultaneously. And when I say hard, but I mean willingly, wanting to, I mean a passionately, Uh, clued in to everything that's going on because they want to see beneath what is actually just on the surface. They want to kind of decipher, decode it. And so there are a lot of subtle clues, really clever filmmakers really bury a lot in that subtext. You know, Hitchcock is certainly one of them. Stanley Kubrick is one of them. And, you know, we can all disagree as to what that subtext is because these films are too rich a brew great films to ever be reduced to a single flavor. There there are multiple readings or misreadings that you could have of each film and all would be legitimate and that you could support whatever you're asserting as long as you can ground it in examples in the text. So it's, uh, you know, what makes a perfect film? I mean, I guess it's one that whether or not you like it, it's great with or without you. See, Citizen Kane is going to be a great film. One of the greatest films if not the greatest film ever made, certainly in America, whether you like it or not, right? The Mona Lisa is going to be a great painting, whether you personally like it or not. That's the mark of great art, is that it transcends taste. It's beyond taste, stands on its own. So very few films, other films need your taste in order to survive, that you have a taste, that you have a proclivity towards that type of material, that you embrace it and that you enjoy it. Whereas other people stay away from it, like the plague, okay, well, but the thing about Chinatown it's great with or without you, whether you get on board or not, that film, which it's with its, you know, downbeat, tenebrous ending, total destruction of the innocents, uh, evil wins. you know, very powerful people cannot be brought to justice in America. That's what that film is saying it's a post Watergate movie. Watergate. Right. You know, Richard Nixon wasn't fully brought to justice. I mean, in a way, he benefited off his presidency, he made a lot of money. I mean, he was interviewed by David Frost. He made $600,000 for three interviews, $600,000 in the late 1970s. My Penn professors in the late 1970s were making $10,000 a year. Uh, and he made $600,000 in a few hours. So uh, he wrote books that were all bestsellers. He was a distinguished statesman by the time. You know, he totally rehabilitated when he died because he was pardoned and he had Secret Service protection and a pension. It's not such a bad life, you know, post-president, where he could have, in another scenario, if he had paid the price for what he had done during the Watergate scandal, the Watergate cover-up, all of that, he might have been in prison. You see, it's very hard in America to really bring really powerful people. That's what what Chinatown is saying. That's what actually Watergate was revealing. Uh, Very hard to bring these people to justice. And look, we can, you know, make modern comparisons. I mean, depending on what side of the political aisle you're on. But, um, you know, the average guy will, you know, he'll go to the chair, whereas other people that are connected who can actually buy off jurors, manipulate the jury, buy the best, you know, dream team, uh, legal uh, representation, they have an edge that the rest of us will never, ever, you know, have access to. So that's what these films a lot of times are – trying to address the inequality in America right Philadelphia is a great mm. film why is it a great film yeah. because really what it's about is not just AIDS it's a movie that is about no matter who you are regardless of your race regardless of your religion your not you know natural origin regardless of your gender your age your economic status your sexual orientation your disability, your capability. Philadelphia is a movie about how every American deserves to receive equal protection under the law. That is what that film is about. And that's why that is such a powerful movie. And uh, I mean, I'm just saying that these filmmakers, they had a choice. They could have made played it Safe, Jonathan Demme, it made Silence of the Lambs. He could have just continued to make movies that would have just made a ton of money. But no, he makes a movie about the AIDS epidemic. Are you kidding I mean, you know, who's going to want to necessarily go see that? The movie did make $73 million. It was a modest success at the time. It later made more money over time. But he made that movie because as a a person, as an artist, as someone who saw that he had many friends that had died of this dreadful disease, he wanted to make a statement. He wanted to try to make change. He wanted to – and Philadelphia would be in this lineup of films that changed America if we had the full day – right? If I had three hours, two and a half hours to really show all the film's clips I wanted to. But he right. was somebody who cast 50, 50 people in that film. Over 50 people were cast as extras who were dying of AIDS or were you know, infected with mm. HIV. I think I believe of the 50, only one is still alive. Mm. I mean, I hope she's still alive. Well. The last I checked, she was. But you see, nobody else would hire them. And so, what do we mm. have? We have we have a film that uh you know goes out of its way. Denzel Washington is the one that has the real arc in the movie. He's the one that's the outsider. he's the one that's most Americans. They don't even care they don't won't, they don't really know people affected with AIDS yeah until somebody gets a bad tr- blood transfusion. they find out somebody back then was a relative that was in the closet and you know they didn't realize it but Then they have to confront it. But for the most part, that's who that film was going after, not the people who were already sympathetic to people who were afflicted with that disease. They wanted to actually educate and convert those that were, well, kind of giving those with AIDS kind of a hard time. Because, you know, only one morgue in Philadelphia actually accepted AIDS, uh, you know, victims, and very few hospitals accepted anyone with AIDS back then. And to this day, Philadelphia is, to this day, three times the national average of HIV infections. They get about 750 new to 850 new um, HIV infection, you know, people that are affected with HIV a year. Uh, why that is, I mean, right. I mean, it's, you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, we need better education. We need, you know, to still get the word out. It's not any longer the death sentence it once was. It's now a chronic disease. There are antigen retroviral drugs, which are attributed to the, the impact of that movie on American society in the mid nineties that actually spurred scientists and pharmaceutical companies really getting gear into to really sort of make vaccines, um, available, you know, antiretroviral drugs available. So, yeah, that's, I mean, movies can right. have an incredible impact if we, we really you know, right, uh, support these writers and directors and producers.
1: Let me, let me make it, uh, another, uh, left turn here. So, uh Popcorn movies. So would you say that you dislike popcorn movies? No I,
2: no, I mean, it's like this. I think everybody needs to have a wide range of films. It's, it's sort of like if you say you like to go out to a restaurant. I mean, every night you want to go every single night to a really high French, you know, multi-course, really rich food. That will kill you. You can't take it. I mean, not everybody, you know, can take going to movies that are really intense and, you know, emotionally draining or challenging, you know, intellectually. And, um, on occasion, you really want that kind of film. It'd be nice to know that it does exist when we really want it, but there's nothing wrong with just going to movies and having a good time, you know, a good comedy, but even comedies can, can say something. Orton, the British playwright said that comedy is serious business. And that's why tyrants fear it. Uh, you can use all kinds of tones to go after the targets that you're, you know, to seeking to, you know, to hit, you know, with, you know the bullseyes that you're, that you're painting. You don't have to make it just a serious drama all the time. So there's nothing wrong with comedy. There's nothing wrong with like films. There's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, just going to the movies to be entertained. But if you go to a movie where not only are you entertained, not only are you emotionally affected, but there's something about this film that you want to see it a second time. Almost the moment you step out of the theater, you just have to get back to see this film again. Well, that film is telling you something. It's telling you that obviously there's something more beneath the surface that you need to try to exhume, that you need to have access to. And on a third and fourth and That's fifth right. viewing, those are the kind of films that then have a chance of really revealing something quite profound.
1: Exactly, it's not going to be all exactly. there on
2: handed to you on Mark, a platter on the first well. viewing.
1: Right. Okay, Mark, so I want to take a right turn now. and uh, get, I'm going to throw a fun question out there. Tell our audience out there, who was Johnny Vandermeer?
2: Johnny Vandermeer was, uh, what, the baseball pitcher? Yeah. Is that who you're saying? Who pitched back-to-back, yeah, hitters
1: There you go. There you go. And so that kind of segues into what I want to talk about next is uh, I know that you teach screenwriting and you always said that uh, it's hard to have back-to-back hits as a screenwriter. So talk about some of the, uh, the things that it takes to become good at that craft.
2: Well, that's now on March 21st and 22nd. I'll be giving a two-day seminar at the Smithsonian um, Institution. Um, it's a place where I taught back in the 90s and early aughts. And it's been a while since I've been back there, so it's really nice to be going back. So this is, a, this is a similar to the uh, seminar I gave up in Syracuse last weekend in Syracuse, New York. This is different than just analyzing movies as artistic and, you know, uh, and historical context of films. This is a nuts and bolts on the foundation of how to write a screenplay. And so, yes, um, that's what this, those seminars are going to be coming up. So your question is, I mean, how do you write a script? I mean, is that sort of what you're saying?
1: No, I was just saying that uh, it's so hard to it's so hard to write even one good one, and then uh, you know, let alone having back to back ones. But uh, that kind well, of well, yeah, I mean, to, it is.
2: I mean, it's interesting yeah. you bring up Johnny Vandermeer. I mean, right. But I mean, it, you know, he never really did much after that. But boy, those two games, two times in a row, he was he was something else. I think that was like the late 1930s. My father remembered that pitcher. Um, but there are certain writers that do have the sort of the Midas touch. They're able to, I mean, Aaron Sorkin is somebody that's not just Johnny Vandermeer. He's, he's Lou, Lou Gehrig. He's Babe Ruth. He's, you know, he's all the greatest. Yeah. If you're to use the baseball analogy. He's Sandy Koufax. He's Nolan Ryan. He's, he's like all of them in one. You can kind of do it all. But uh, I think that, you know, as a writer, you just have to write about what you're really passionate about. And you just hope that, that passion is going to sort of elevate your work to the highest possible level that you can bring it. And if let's say that work and that passion ignites the passion of others that want to now get on board as directors, as production team members, as actors, that they want to then bring this actual, you know, piece of the, these pieces of paper to life, right? Where the words on the page now become images on the silver screen. Well, that is, that is a real magical thing. And if you can do that and sort of inspire people to want to do it more than once with you, well, then you've got something pretty special going. And, yes, it's That's not an easy right. – it's certainly not an easy thing to accomplish. But,
1: right. so, most, know, with this, that this, said, there are this,
2: movies made this, that are terrible this, that are made over and over because they make a lot of money. And so, right, so just getting your movies made and making a lot of money, you know, can be okay, but wouldn't it be nice if you could have that's your movie right. made and like that's the true. film says something okay. that you're really proud Mark, of? Mark,
1: we're we're getting we're, we're getting low on time, so I just want to throw out there. Okay. um There's a lot of books on uh, screenwriting, so they uh, the Cat Greenplay by Stid Field. Uh, what do you think about those books? I mean, they, they have different philosophies, and uh, so what's right. your take on those?
2: Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, and thank you. I I would say my personal um. Assessment is if you feel you need to read books by Sid Field or Michael Haig or, uh, uh, you know, any of them, uh, you know, Save the Cat, Story by Robert McKee, if you feel you have to read those, go ahead and read them. I mean, they can't hurt you. But my philosophy is, uh, with my students, is that they should read screenplays. That's where you're going to learn how to write a script, to read a screenplay, to analyze a screenplay, to reread a screenplay a couple of times. And then to move on to another screenplay, reading books on how to be a screenwriter, um, to me are not not the it's not the number one way to learn how to be a uh, you know someone who writes for the cinema. Look, once upon a time when all these great movies were being written and produced, there were no books on how to write screenplays. There were no seminars. There were no uh, softwares, you know, in your computer. There was no Final Draft or Movie Magic, right? They actually, what did they do? They sort of lived their lives, they observed the world, they locked themselves away in some room or some hotel room, someplace, their basement, and they just wrote. And they studied the scripts of the studio that they could get their hands on, and they developed their own style, and that's how it was. And I think that might be part of the reason why scripts today aren't as strong on the whole is because they're all kind of coming through that mill of, you know, everybody's read these same books. Everybody's trying to apply these same theories to their, to, their, to their writing, and it becomes kind of this homogenized sort of sea of scripts that are very similar to one another. And unique voices kind of get strangled out because they're not matching the specifications of what a lot of these books are sort of stipulating. Uh, that a, that a you know, successful screenplay should have. I think that a writer should, he or she should develop their own style based on what they what they encounter in the literature of the medium, not in the how-to books of the medium. But as I said, if the how-to books give you some kind of confidence, if they give you, I mean, look, Sid Field, years ago, you know, the book came out, the very first one that he wrote, I guess, in the 80s, something, you know, somewhere. And there's like one area of it where someone in his workshop was writing this drama, this very serious drama, and he brought brought in pages and the pages were met with a lot of laughter in the class. They weren't laughing at it, they just thought it was funny. So the writer wasn't real happy and Sidfield told the guy, You gotta you gotta you gotta go home and rewrite it again. You gotta, you know, make it be what you want it to be. So he came back again and they still found it funny. They didn't find it the serious drama that this guy was trying to trying to write. And so eventually Sid Field, with all these failed attempts, said, well, you're not ready to write this yet. You need to put this away and go on to something else. And maybe someday you'll be able to write it the way you see it. And, you know, that might be good advice. But, see, my advice would be, look, this script is trying to tell you it's not a drama, right? What's wrong with being funny? If it's funny, why don't you write into that and then see where it takes you? That would have been my advice to him. And then if that fails, which it doesn't seem like it's failing, people were laughing, now you might have a real success on your hands. And if then, you can always abandon and come back to it later. So, I mean, we have different philosophies as instructors. You know, everybody's going to be different in what they're going to tell you. That's the one thing about when you write a script. You have to be very careful who you give your script to, you know, when it comes to the evaluation of your screenplay. Because a lot of people will not give you an evaluation based on what you've written. They'll give you an evaluation based on what they think you should have written. And that's different. And that's really the wrong way to steer a writer. You've got to talk about what they're trying to execute and how they could have executed that more cleanly or more clearly or more mysteriously or more what? powerfully, dramatically, comedically. And this is, this is what, you know, writers have to learn. And I've been very lucky because, you know, I've had students that have gone on to really great things. I mean, they really are. I'm very proud of them. I mean, from, you know, Our Souls at Night to uh, The Disaster Artist to 500 Days of Summer to Spectacular Now, Paper Towns. Uh, that's one of my former students, Scott Newstadter from University of Pennsylvania. He's written many other things. Uh, I've had students that have written the breakup and uh, you know rewrote the Hangover. They were the, this one, Jeremy Gerlich. Uh He he was responsible for the rewrite of the Hangover that made that the successful film that it was, the highest grossing R-rated comedy of all time. He was a Yale student. Uh, right now, that same student bought a high school that was for sale in Syracuse, New York, where I just was a week ago, and he turned it into a film studio. And he's been he's turned out four films of his own one that he just recently directed with Vince Vaughn within the first year. And they also, you know, right. rented out to other production companies that have had their films picked up by at Sundance by, you know, major studios. So, I mean, there are people out there that are really interested in, they're really passionate and all of them, all of my most successful students, they were ones that really went after what it was that made them really, really want to get up in the morning early to start writing the script because it's so easy to put off a script. You can't write a script thinking this is what the world you know, seems to be wanting. This is what seems to be working at the box office, so I guess that's what I'm going to write. You can't dictate what's going to be the next wave. You can only write what you think is going to make you happy as an artist and as a writer and that you're passionate about,
1: right. and you
2: hope that then it's going, to, it's going to click with somebody. And Again, you just have to find – it's always about finding the right home. I have so many students that have sold scripts and that were rejected at so many places. And somehow it got into the hands of one producer who just he or she saw it differently than all those others that like passed on it. And then the script sold for like a lot of money. So you just got to stay in the game. Exactly. just like in, in acting. I'm sure that's what you say. You know, you can't just expect to go to a couple of classes, you know, have a, uh, you know, have a little you know, bit of training and then, you know, get major, major roles. Maybe sometimes it happens and good for an actor that you know is everything happens that quickly. But most of it is about rejection. It's about, you know, being just you yeah,
1: know you keep putting rolling. through you put keep through rolling. the
2: paces. But if you stick in the game, so eventually you learn so we're much down that to about eventually, ten minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're
1: down to about ten minutes. So um got two about two or three more questions and we're just gonna wrap up here. Uh, this is a lot okay. of fun. So um have you heard of are you familiar with the classes out there at uh, masterclass.com that they have on screen and the Aaron Sorkin has a class out there Yeah yeah
2: yeah I've seen it yeah yeah
1: have you have you have you had a chance to, to look at any of those what's what's your what's your I opinion of have seen, way? you know
2: I've seen Joyce Carol Oates I've seen Aaron Sorkin it's been a while since I saw them so David Mammoth gave yeah. one
1: yeah
2: I think yeah, they're great that was yeah a good
1: one. Oh okay. There's a good the other question I had was um, you know there's the hero's journey and the three act structure, but then there's some movies that don't follow those structures. I mean Tarantino, he has more of a five act structure. What's your take on that? Do you right. do you have a preference?
2: I don't have a preference. I have a preference that whatever the material dictates, that's what you gotta do. Right? The material is what determines what whether it's a it feels like it's a traditional three act structure. And when we say three act structure in a film we just mean beginning, middle and end, right? I mean that's really what yeah. it is. There's no act breaks in a screenplay. Right. You can't see the act breaks. It's not like a stage play. Right. So that's something that arbitrarily is imposed upon a script. But if you know anything about theater, very few uh stage plays today are written in a three act structure. I mean that was something that was like in the nineteen twenties and thirties, you know, J B Priestley uh, you know, wrote three-act structure plays. Uh, most plays today are two acts, two acts, or one act, and they're just one long act. Right. Um, yeah, there can be some that are, you know, Shakespeare wrote in five acts, Ibsen Ips- wrote in four acts. So, what? That doesn't mean that their plays are in any way diminished by the number of acts that they have. You know, I just think that people can get lost in all of this. You have to learn how to tell a story, right? If you're not a good storyteller, screenwriting is not for you. Because it's all about story structure, the dialogue is subordinate to the story that's going down. The scenes move always in unison to, you know, they work together to, you know, and in collaboration to constantly move the story forward. It's all about narrative in in cinema. Theater is different. Theater is more of an orally driven medium. Can be about the dialogue. I mean, that's what Beckett, you know, they say. What you know, what we, brings us here in Endgame is the dialogue. That's what keeps us here, but. That's not what keeps us here in the cinema. Yeah, with certain writers, they're more dialogue-driven. Tarantino is pretty dialogue-heavy, right? My dinner with Andre. Those are the exceptions. That's not really normally how cinema works. Hitchcock, throughout his work, has long sections, especially in a movie like Psycho, where there's absolutely no dialogue. I mean, he did start in the silent era. He just lets the picture tell the story. And indeed, you've got to think in pictures. That was a that was a very good book. Um, if you want to, you know, read a good book about uh, where you'll learn a lot about writing for the for the film you know for film. Get John Sales's book uh, Thinking in Pictures: The Making of the Movie Matewan, and in the back you have the actual script published in the back, so you can read the actual screenplay he wrote. That's a great movie, um, and he talks about you know his his approach. Every writer has a different approach. Uh, when Cinco Paul, who uh, is a Yale grad, his daughter was a student of mine at Yale. He's a very famous, uh, very successful Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote all the Despicable Me, um, The Life of Pets, those huge blockbusters. He's come to my class at least three times and uh, tends to come almost every year now. And we love when he comes. And what he'll say when we say – I'll ask him. I said, the students are curious. You know, how do you work? I mean, what, what is your day like as a writer? And you know what his answer was? I go to my no. office at about 9 o'clock, and I think – I just think about my story until about four in the afternoon. You know, I have a lunch break. I do all that. And uh, I write from about four to six, if I'm, even if it's that long. I'm not even writing pages for most of the day. And so, I mean, there are other writers that the first thing they do is they write pages when they get up in the morning. That's when they're at their best. Yeah. So you can't really worry about how other people are creative. You've got to find out how are you best, you know, serving your creativity. Some people write late at night. Others are too exhausted late at night to try to write something. And, you know, revising a script is different from creating a new, you know, script from scratch. Once you have scenes written, you can actually spend a lot of time revising those scenes that are written. But it's writing those scenes in the first place, that is what is much more challenging and takes a lot more time, or could take a lot more time.
1: Exactly, exactly. So we're going to wrap up here. So um, so, Mark, uh, tell us uh, what else you have coming up and uh, how students can sign up for your class.
2: Well, I mean, just the thing on Sunday with um, One Day University, you can just go to their site, One Day University, click on live events, and you'll see, uh, click on Washington, D.C., um, and then you'll, you'll see, you know, my, my lecture with two others. Uh, the Smithsonian is the March 21st and 22nd. Um, I'm in a lot of other cities where I, where I talk, but obviously you're you're the Washington, D.C. market. Washington, D.C. is my hometown. I was born in Georgetown Hospital. I mean, I love coming back home. So thank you so much for having me. It's very kind and generous to you to spend all this time, uh, you know, letting me sound off on movies and things. But uh, thank <laughs> you, William. And it's great what you do for everybody. And obviously, you're, you know, you're a, a very important, um, you know, shining light, right, for all those that are creative especially in in your hometown of Washington, D.C., who are trying to get their dreams realized, and it's not easy, right? Because being an artist is not something that is, uh, you know, usually welcome with open arms. And that's one thing, I I guess it was Sherwood Anderson said, it's very hard to make a living in American theater, but boy, oh boy, you can on occasion make a killing. And that is sort of true. It's like rags to riches, or it's just rags and stay rags, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mark, it was a pleasure, man. I really enjoyed this.
2: Well, thank you. And you know, hopefully we'll see you around. All right. And I look Excellent. forward to seeing you. Okay. All right.
1: Good luck. Okay. Thanks, William. Okay. Bye bye.
2: Okay,
1: bye. All right, folks. Remember to do something for your career every single day and break a an leg. Night.
0: Under the dark you pacify me Hold my breath Take me down, I won't fight Beat of my heart, you drum inside me Somewhere my death Makes a sound no one can find I.